0: Welcome to the Well podcast episode 13 or so. I'm here with Jody Pack. Jody and I met each other about 5 years ago. Jody is part of the music community and we met through mutual friends in the music community. But mutual friends on either side of our community said, "Hey, you got to meet this girl, Jody. She's amazing. She's like a hunter and she like plays music. You got to meet her. You totally hit it off with her." And Jody, what did you hear from your friends?
1: Uh, well, I heard something kind of similar. Like, oh, you have to meet Dylan. He's a hunter, and I was like, oh, great. I need another hunter in my life. Fantastic. So I kind of avoided. I avoided seeking you out for sure. Um, and then finally, we we did meet at a show that um, your what well, was your good friend's show that I was playing in, and we we totally hit it off. So that that was good.
0: Okay. So <laughs> this podcast, what I wanted to. Talk about J- Jody comes from uh you you come from a a, a commercial hunting family a gu- guide outfitting family yeah. so you're you're so jody Peck's from up north you, you grew up in
1: I grew up in the peace river valley uh, and um I've worked in hunting outfits my whole life in the Northwest territories in the Yukon northern b c um, Toshote River Outfitters, it's currently Toshote River Outfitters. was in my family for a number of generations under Don Peck outfitting and then Ross Peck outfitting. and um, i I worked there for a number of years. Um, basically, I've worked in about five or six different world class hunting outfits in the in the north of Canada over many years. Okay. I started when I was four.
0: <laughs> Great. So- <laughs> and I
1: still work in the industry.
0: So, the thought of like some dude in Vancouver teaching hipsters how to hunt.
1: I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, like hilarious. Okay, so, just, so people are like, oh, you have to meet this guy. He hunts. It's like, like I said, number one, I do not need any more hunters in my life. Um, my family takes up my full quota of hunting talk. And then meeting a hipster hunter just sounded. I, I'm
0: not a hipster hunter.
1: You're not a hipster. I yeah. now know. I now know you're not yeah, a hipster but that hunter. That have been the
0: impression that people left with you. Yes. Um, so, and, and, and on the flip side of that, as people are telling me, I got to meet this woman, Jody because she's in the music community and she, she's, a, she's a hunting guide and wouldn't, you should just know this person. I, you know, coming from a resident hunter background, one of the discussions that often comes up is, is distinguishing between being a food first hunter, someone who hunts for food and then someone who trophy hunts. And often as as sort of being a minor spokesperson for for hunting or a hunting advocate for sure in in my community. I'm often...
1: And often people's first contact to hunting as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. I I usually get hit up. I mean, people, yeah, I I get a lot of questions. I get questions. Whenever a a negative story pops up in the media, I get a call from CTV and CBC and they want a reference point for hunting and and they'll, they'll they'll call me up and ask me about it. Regardless of what the story is, there's always, I'm always asked to take a position on trophy hunting and like Mm -hmm. is, and, and in my mind, I'm always going, you know, I really got to find a way to differentiate uh, food hunting from trophy hunting. And 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 I actually was, before I met you, I was actually, I had just written an article about like um, trying to create a, like some language for these new hunters that were coming out of the wild community to help help them develop a language of how to distinguish themselves from the negative stereotypes of trophy hunting. And I was midway writing through this article, just like saying, we basically bashing trophy hunting and like, and, and spouting the virtues of food first hunting. And I and feel like
1: you came at me with that, like instantly. Oh, at our first conversation, anyway.
0: So, okay, this has been a really long introduction. We're not really getting very far on the introduction. So, the, so what I thought was interesting would, would be a, so Jody comes from uh, a hunting, uh, a commercial hunting family. I definitely am well entrenched in the resident hunting community.
1: I would say that you're a commercial, you come from a hunting industry background at this point as well, seeing how you now profit off of hunting in a certain context.
0: I think that's a good point. I so do. I do. Hunting I
1: do, industry? I would say yes. <laughs> you, Dylan, are part of the hunting industry, as am I, in a certain part of my life i would definitely not say that's my full relationship that's like actually a very small relationship to uh, of my relationship to hunting but it is a part of it it's like an undeniable part of it
0: well i'd have to say that you're you're absolutely right so the 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 reality is i get to pay for a sheep trip a year for my efforts to get wild and you know maybe do some boat maintenance too so it's 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 been a I, i definitely am profiting from the workshops and courses that I've been doing and the huge revenue from this podcast, actually, the advertising <laughs> and, wow, the sponsorship deals I've been able to rake in. Amazing. Well,
1: there are four listeners we distinguished at, at, at least, the beginning. At
0: least, yes, yes. Um, so why I sort of thought it would be good to have you hang out with me is that getting to know you and getting to know about the hunting industry has really changed my perspective on what the commercial hunting industry is, is about or the, the, the guided hunting industry is about and, and the families that are involved and the conservation they do. And instead of dividing the two communities between like resident hunters and guided hunters, I mean, really at the end of the day, there's a, a lot of common ground and there's a really cool, rich history from the- well, from the.
1: I would say that most outfitters are also resident hunters mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. Um that's just a fact.
0: <laughs> yeah, everybody hunts. We all hunt. We all really care about the same things and I think it's uh, really important that uh what I think would be really cool is, in, in this podcast is is that we can talk a little bit about the where we're from and the projects that we're doing to help talk about our separate heritage as it relates to hunting. And um and you're 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 just launched a new project that mm-hmm. um ties back to your heritage within the Guided hunting communities. So the point of this podcast talk a little bit about the guided hunting industry, the roles and and uh, lifestyles and stuff that come from that and the heritage of it. Yeah, and a little bit about maybe softening the relationship between um, our resident hunting community and, and and that and also just to get to know a little bit about what Jody's up to in terms of her new project. So Jody, why don't you introduce what you're what you're stepping into now um, with your new project?
1: Okay. Well, um, my new project is called Wild Northern Way and just to put it all straight, I am a hunting camp cook. And I have been for my whole life. My mom, my grandma were also hunting camp cooks. And basically, in my outfitting family, if if you can't cook for the camp, <laughs> there's I guess you don't have much to offer. <laughs> so I grew up cooking in hunting camps. And then after I wasn't cooking with my mom anymore it just seemed like every fall I needed to top up on funds and it just so happened that I would go back to camp. And then uh, after doing that for a few decades, I realized that I really liked cooking and had somehow developed this skill set and was actually pretty good at it. And I, so I got, I got myself a culinary education without really meaning to. And, um, it, it was a very handy thing as a musician touring all over the world and such to come back and have a have a big time out in the bush. It' was pretty it's still a pretty big part of my life. And I've been able to do that because of growing up and working in the hunting industry. and i I wasn't really aware or i wasn't I wasn't in contact with how negative the stereotype was because, I knew my family and I knew other families in the hunting industry. I d- don't have a lot of contact with, you know, very rich people coming in from other countries and buying a hunting area and running it like a corporate business. My, my experience is mostly with family-run outfit. It's completely with family-run outfits. That's a lifestyle choice. And the, the main reason for being there is to have access to the wilderness and live in the bush really for a large portion of the year and of and that's that's the driving force of course it's also a business you know you can't get around that but that's it's a lifestyle choice and in my family and in many other people that I that I work for and work with it's generations deep so it's a, it's just a way of life um so I'm coming in from it from that perspective and there's yeah, there is a lot. There is a lot to say. I am definitely not the spokesperson for the hunting industry, and I'm not going to deny that there's um, there is so much gray area within it. But I also can't deny that that's my that's where I'm coming
0: from. Okay, so so just growing up in that community and and it you know so from my experience of like hunting up north and and eventually if you hunt up north long enough, like just just get some background on, on kind of how maybe I should just get some background a little bit. To how the hunting industry is sort of set up in, in 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 British Columbia, so there's there's guide outfitting territories that basically represent
1: a hunt. It's a hunting concession, so you're so you've you're granted a hunting concession to to have the above land rights.
0: Yeah, so you can you can so that the province is divided up into like a hundred and two hunting concessions or or. Or guide outfitting territories, mm-hmm. areas of land. Usually, usually it's like a watershed or part of. If it's a larger watershed, it's broken up into several watersheds. Somewhat
1: of an ecosystem.
0: Yeah, it's usually an ecosystem, and 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 within that, a guide outfitter is granted uh, the right by the province to sell uh, a number of hunts, a so,
1: certain number of permits of different species.
0: Yeah. So so in Tachoti, what was the what were the primary hunting opportunities?
1: Well, Stone Sheep is the big is the big one. That's the one that everyone knows about. Um, But I would say that the elk herd is is probably what the resident hunters would know most about. It's one of one of the the last indigenous herds in BC, I believe. But that's that's another conversation because that elk herd is also in danger. Yeah, it's not doing well right now. It's not not doing well, and that's and that's where the whole conversation about trophy hunting and hunting in general gets really heated where there's there's so many sides of that conversation that need to be discussed rather than just hunting i think I mean let's so, talk so about habitat. A, yeah, okay,
0: yeah, okay. Give me let's an example. talk
1: about let's talk about all the river boats on the river.
0: Yes, yeah, so Let's talk, talk about talk-
1: noise pollution even. <laughs> yeah, Let, sure, just sure. foot traffic. There's so many conversations to be had about, about preservation and conservation that are not hunting specific. It's part of the puzzle, but I I think that it's Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a piece of the puzzle. And then I think in the same in the same vein, um, this this little splitting hairs between trophy hunting and resident hunting is is a similar type of conversation. You get focused on these on the details yeah. of it. So
0: I have a good example for that. So so the, the the guide outfitter that I was working for to do my whitetail guided hunts this past fall, uh there was a burn within the hunting territory that we were working within, and they it burned off, and there was like a a bunch of a few. There was a pulp, most of the pine trees died in the fire, and there was a handful of fir trees that survived the fire. And it's a beautiful south facing hill in mule deer uh, winter range, like super important ecosystem for mule deer that are basically at threatened numbers throughout, throughout the Okanagan, and. So I drove through this bird and going, God, this is, this is going to be an amazing piece of habitat in a couple of years. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, great. Okay, well, I'm going to store this one for uh, hunting in a couple of years. And I ended up uh, giving the guy a call the other day and I was chatting with him. And he, and he said, that he was like, he's been super busy because he's been meeting with the forest company that has the rights to log this hill. And he's been advocating to try and keep them from logging it because of the values that are on this hillside. And he's been going down and sitting down with the CEO of the company just trying to say, hey, this is super valuable for for wildlife, and I have a business stake in this, and it's super important to me that you don't log it. Now, what's interesting about that is I had the same thought,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: I was like, oh, this is great. But I didn't think to go talk to the chief forester mm-hmm. and say, hey, this is a super important ecosystem. Like, if you guys are planning to salvage log this place and nuke it because it's been burned, then... Well, I think
1: it's a whole paradigm shift that needs to happen in in the way that we govern our resources completely because we don't assign value to natural resources that are standing that are natural habitat, that are natural forests and and those are huge resources. They're they're the most important resources. That's actually what we have. And once they're gone, that's a, that's a huge loss of of money, resources, food, water. Cool all the things
0: totally um
1: but we we assign value to to the the money that comes from logging yeah
0: we need to see the value and and whether we whether you're comfortable or not and this comes back to with the market hunting or the the commercial hunting experience it is like so i had a lot throughout the northern rockies in and around the muskwaka chica where uh the commercial hunting industry is active and there's a lot of guide outfitters mm-hmm. that that work within that area. And the Muskoka is, is by far the largest protected area in British Columbia. It, it represents several protected areas, but a whole bunch of land that creates connectivity between the protected areas. And there's restrictions on Oil and gas development and mining development, logging within that area. There's still some allowable uses. There between.
1: definitely is. Because have you ever flown over there and seen the grid yeah. work?
0: Yeah, there's there's definitely some work happening, but it's but it's managed to a to a higher standard with with the main objective to be to maintain wilderness connectivity and wildlife habitat. And mm-hmm. part the, one of the main advocates for for maintaining this connectivity of wilderness and habitat is the guide outfitting guide outfitting industry that's able to operate on this landscape without having an impact Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: the other industries would have. Like if it's oil and gas or mining or logging, if they operate, they're going to, they're going to leave a big footprint. Whereas the commercial industry, commercial hunting industry, will have it, they'll have an effect on one species, one animal on a given day.
1: To an extent. Yes.
0: Yeah. But overall the habitat isn't affected. And Mm -hmm. if, if we hunt within, good scientific limits and ranges, then we won't have an impact on the Mm long-term health of the populations, right?
1: I I agree with that. And I find, I actually think that's really interesting using that area as an example because that particular area has so much hunting pressure um, from residents and from guide outfitters. But one of the big differences, I think, with with the pressure is that the guide outfitters have the means to be mobile. So we have horses, we have airplanes, and we don't overhunt because that doesn't work within our business model.
0: For sure, yeah. If, also yeah. if I'm paying th- if I'm paying twenty five thousand dollars to go hunt an elk, I certainly don't want to hunt. I want. I want. I want to have my socks blown off by yeah. amazing habitat. You don't want to see anybody elk. else. I don't want to see Dylan and his <laughs> jet boat like showing up. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> Couple of his buddies, Dylan and Jeff, like yeah, rolling up at our Stanfield and no. like, yeah, no. It's, and
1: you also probably don't want to kill a spike bull.
0: No, I and, you and, probably and don't I, want
1: to kill a yearling, you probably don't want to kill a cow.
0: So th- so this is interesting. So one of the one things I wanted to ask you in this is is that what is what is one of the biggest misconceptions do you think of the guide outfitting industry?
1: <sighs> There's so many. Um I mean, there's there's so many misconceptions, and then there's some things that are totally dead on. Okay, as well, well, that's the next question. <laughs> so, like, what's what's so what's
0: what's, what's, what's what's one of the most biggest misconceptions? Well, I, mean?
1: I think one of the things that is interesting that people, I mean, okay, let's take sheep, mountain sheep as a species, um, as is a really good example. So, sheep are very easy to age, and the biggest trophies are old animals, um, old rams, and the older rams are most likely they have maybe one, maybe two more years winters left in them, and they're probably past their prime breeding age as well because mm-hmm. they're old. Like when, you know, when they are harvested, their teeth are barely in in their mouths. Like they they are old. Yeah, the ground soldiers. down teeth. Yes,
0: and they probably can't take on.
1: They probably a can't seven have another eight year old ram that's in its
0: prime that can if they're if they're basically competing for the herd, then.
1: The herd, but, the food, or the
0: flock, or whatever you call a group of sheep. Banderams, <laughs> 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 band, of rams, band of, yeah. Anyways, there's lots of, it, but yeah, with, with these mature animals, that the, the 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 animal who is in the best shape ends up getting to breed,
1: getting to breed and surviving the winter. So yeah. one of the biggest misconceptions I would say is that trophy hunters just go and kill everything, and that is completely illegal for one. Yeah, and completely against a guide outfitter's business model. Because it's a resource that you need to maintain and manage in order to have a business. So you're not going to be taking young rams. It's, as, as a guide, it's shameful to take a young ram.
0: <laughs> well, <so what laughs> you know, it's is. a thing of
1: pride. So, you, so basically. Okay, so the, the
0: guide feels shame or the client feels shame? The guide and no, the and the and the
1: guide is controlling the guide and outf- outfitter are controlling the experience because the clients are out of their element very literally. Mm-hmm. They're Absolutely. not they're not from there. they they don't do they don't climb mountains and look at habitat, watch animals all day, every day, live in the bush, mm-hmm. uh, survive, read the seasons. Read, read the weather. They don't do that every day. They don't have those skills honed. they They come in for their ten days. They invest a huge amount of money into the local economy and into the, you know, the northern regions of Canada and small towns and use things like the local flight service. You buy your groceries at the local store, sure, sure. you get you get local taxidermist because taxidermy is pretty uh, it's very location expensive. specific. Yeah. You don't want somebody from the southern states doing your caribou,
0: and you have to pay a cook good money.
1: Exactly, and to then make there's and then, food. <laughs> and then there's the cook.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The most and, important part. Okay, and, so, and, and this is the, I mean, this is I think this is kind of a cool part of the, your, your story is that when when we when I first met you, you you were touring with your band Miss Quincy and the Showdown, and you would you would work for three months a year in the bush cooking, mm-hmm. and you'd bank enough money. That it would give you the flexibility and the freedom to, to
1: it's, if a tour busted or not. Yeah, a tour <laughs> busted or not. But which,
0: which I mean, you know, people don't don't get the opportunity to to really pursue their projects. I mean, you were living in a comfortable way and being able to take risks and work on your project and build up your. In,
1: professionalism
0: yeah. as it, as a, it build up your, whatever. I you're pro- can't yeah.
1: deny that the hunting industry has supported my art, uh, my artist career. Yeah. This is, <laughs> that, I guess is
0: great. I mean, that, that seems to be, I think it's a really cool part of the story, right? And so, so, okay. So that, that's, so that's one of the, I, I think I mean, it's does part that of the story. That
1: that's like one of the biggest misconceptions that trophy hunters come in and shoot everything and they don't take into <laughs> consideration that there's age and that there's you know, that yeah, there are. Well, and regu- the guides are, heavily, yeah. And this heavily, heavily regulated. regulated. The,
0: the one that I think is probably, I mean, every, every time I've met a, a guided hunter or, you know, and talked to guides and talked to people in the hunting community, like the people that I've met, I mean, there, there's definitely a handful of people that are, that are out there that have a ton of money that are going out there for just the next adventure and they're just paying for the next, the next thing on their list. Absolutely. But the majority of people that I, the people that I met have been people who are just really, passionate about wilderness and hunting and want to go have one of the most amazing experiences of their life and they're willing to save up for it or willing to prioritize it with the wealth they do have. To go and, and have an experience in some of the more spectacular places in British Columbia, yeah, and get the help and support to do it.
1: Well, I mean, that's the, one of the amazing things about humanity is the spectrum is big. So yes, <laughs> yeah, there is yeah, all can, those. As things. I said, this you're shaking your head. <laughs> yeah. and you're like,
0: no, there's a lot of douchebags. There,
1: <laughs> <laughs> there is every kind of person that yeah. comes hunting, <laughs> yeah. and but see that, but it. The thing is, is it doesn't really matter that much because they are not the ones in control. The guide outfitters are in control. It's heavily regulated. So
0: Okay, so I kinda get what you're saying. So like it doesn't really matter what I mean the clients still, are just the money. We're and still really leaving big, no trace. Yeah.
1: Because they're like they're not like eating a chocolate bar and throwing the wrapper on the ground. Yeah. The guide would be like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. This is how we this is how this is how we roll around here, and they're not going to say anything because they are in the middle of the wilderness, <laughs> the top of a mountain in a pup tent. They're being, scared shitless,
0: yeah. So, they're being the so their lifeline is the guide and the guide outfitter, and, and that's they're, and, and they're, they're controlling gonna buy the experience, the yeah. They're yes. controlling the experience and they're setting the standard and they're setting the ethic for exactly for the experience that's going to come for sure. And
1: guide outfitters are not going to do anything to be in trouble with the CO. And most of them actually have really good relationships oh, for with sure. the yeah. local CEO. Yeah, so so yes, there is a business model and that turns people off. However, it is probably one of our greener industries. <laughs> like it, hate it. Like it,
0: hate it. Okay. So that was my evolution. And and funny enough, when I met you, like I was writing an article about, you know, the anti guided industry and how one of the challenges that the resident hunting community has and has had with the previous allocation policy put out, uh, a wildlife allocation policy that was put out by the previous government and there was certainly a perception that it wasn't equitable between uh, allocating wildlife to guide outfitters and allocating wildlife to resident hunters. So in other words like in some areas of the province, in one particular management unit, there might be enough moose in that area to have 10 moose shot in a year. So the, the way it would work is we'd have an allocation between the first nations who have a traditional right to harvest for food and ceremonial purposes. So we'll say three moose go to the first nation community that's within their traditional territory. And then three moose would be allocated to the guide outfitting industry. Uh, so that the individual who owns the rights to hunt that area can continue to sell three hunts a year, and then there 's four moose left, and they go to the resident hunting community and then myself or any other resident hunter can put in into the limited entry hunting draw to um, apply for those four opportunities so naturally, there would be discussion between the first nations the guide outfitting community and the resident hunting community as to who gets their share of, mm-hmm. the, of the 10 moose. And, and, and obviously each party would want to advocate for their position and why it's important. Mm-hmm. So there was a policy that came, that was, that was, uh, developed by the previous government where it was perceived that the guide outfitting community received, uh, a, an additional proportion of allocations of wildlife, um, to help support the industry and and it wasn't equitable to resident hunters, and that was a big deal.
1: It's interesting because it would be interesting to look at each of those areas and look at access. Just from what I was saying before, I mean, we were talking about the Tishoudi earlier. The Tishoudi is a really interesting one because uh, you've driven a jet boat
0: up the yeah. Tishoudi, yeah? I've never been up to the Tishoudi, but I've driven a jet boat on the Moskwa.
1: Okay, so it's like a highway.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't gone there because of the of the density of hunters mm-hmm. there.
1: And I can say that it's not very much on that, on that corridor up and down the river. It's not a whole lot of the guide outfitter traffic no. because their, they, their hunters don't want to see that. Yeah. Uh, but it's very heavily hunted. It's also like, it's also a little bit sad the way it's being used because you'll see, you'll see beer cans and things like that. That's a- And, and really piles of
0: gas on every beach really so you can get on. Really heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah, so it's interesting to, to just take a look at access and who has, who has access, who has me- the means to use that. Just yeah. an interesting. Yeah, for sure. And, an and interesting perspective. Yeah,
0: yeah. You
1: know, that, that just happens.
0: For sure, for sure. But
1: And habitat changes and life cycles happen and a burn goes through and suddenly the, the habitat is completely different and needs different regulations, you know.
0: Yeah, and it totally changes over time. yeah. So like my personal education on the whole thing has evolved a little bit in my, I wouldn't say, I mean, now that I actually, here I am like four or five years later and I'm now an assistant guide in the industry, I actually guide hunters and I work with a guide outfitter to, to under, and I got a much closer snapshot of how the industry works from having worked in it a little bit for however limited time. I mean, I did, I did, you know, I sold five hunts. It's not, but. I kind of get it a little bit more. Now, having said that, I still think that I have a hard time personally. I, I think the process by which we allocate wildlife should be based on science and it should be based mm-hmm. not not on business cases and business models. And if, if someone's going broke because their business can't, you know, they can't, they they bought a business where they got three moose a year and they now they need six to make a buck, well... You know,
1: mm-hmm. I don't think that
0: should come at the expense of I, a family. Then. I don't
1: think so either. And it's interesting because my perspective on that is I've worked for and in families that have that are generations deep within the hunting industry. So that's so that's well managed resources. It's not coming into a brand new hunting outfit with somebody who's uneducated and buying something that's been over hunted or mismanaged. Yeah, for sure. So I come from a pretty. Like, I come from a privileged place within the hunting industry. Like, I've had a fairly charmed existence within it. And not only has it paid for my artist career, <laughs> yeah. well, you find it some of the more
0: beautiful places in BC for sure. Okay. Well, let, let's switch gears to just, just because I mean, we've already been wrapping here for, I, for quite a while. I think we're probably getting up, we, we were trying to do for half an hour, and I think we're probably well over that.
1: Yeah. I wasn't even going to talk about hunting. And I know. I
0: know. And really, what I wanted to talk about was just about how we got to know each other. And then I wanted to talk about your project and then maybe just, finish off with one of the, maybe one of our favorite meals that we make when we go and cook for people in hunting camp. So tell me about your project first. So what do you, what are you doing next?
1: Okay. So I have a new project that, um, is, is definitely rooted in my work as a bush cook (laughs) and my heritage as a bush bush cook, I guess you could say. Uh, well, I don't, I don't live and work in the bush like how I grew up. I now go and spend a couple months in the fall in a hunting camp, uh, but the rest of the time I live in the city or I'm on the road with my band. And I wanted a way to be able to continue to bring, basically elevate wild meat into a gourmet culinary realm. Um, And there is an audience for that in the city because people really want to be educated on wild meat and, and they don't have the opportunity to even try it most of the time. And I'm fortunate enough that I get to go home every year and I go hunting for myself so I can fill my freezer. And like you, it's it's a rich feeling to have a freezer full of amazing best quality meat. It's you know, it's it's a very grounding rich feeling to yeah. have that.
0: You have great friends when you have a freezer full of amazing food.
1: Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Never a shortage of friends. Yeah. Every <laughs> time
0: I come to your, every time I hang at like, your place and you're cooking, there's like, I'm surrounded by some of Vancouver's like most amazing, interesting characters. Like,
1: well, yeah, I'm not just going to cook for the boring ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. No, but yeah.
0: Like, yeah. I mean, I, I never missed off place the who's the table. Who, But yeah, but it was a really, like, last time I was here, I was like, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I had a long conversation with a young woman at, at dinner and I, I ended up. Uh, she she gave me her Instagram account. I went into in, like just to say you're hello. Like, oh, and, you're famous! Oh, you're famous! Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you're a big deal. Good luck in those the Grammy nominations. You know. Like, yeah, no, anyways, but that was a good that was a good night. But but yeah, but it's amazing how like how that wild food brings people together and and mm-hmm. it brings interesting people together.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, food and music, those are the things that bring people together. I think like the the food music conversation. Right. That's
0: yeah you feel pretty rich
1: yeah it's a it's a good it's a good time, so I basically wanted to have a platform for that um that that is in the city and or when I'm traveling. so I started this project called wild northern way. It's a food blog, but it's also events, private chefing pop up restaurants and a and a place for my city home of bush cooking <laughs> Perfect. Yeah.
0: Perfect. So, so I can, so I can hire you. So I, I, am very, I I do work with you for a number of my workshops. Yeah, you do hire me, I do hire (laughs) you for a number of my workshops. And like, and we've all decided that, that it's by far the best way to, yeah, it just accentuates our workshop so much to have you there as a cook and also you bring your heritage with, with you and have lots of great stories to tell. And, and also like one of the things we talked about, we were trying to brainstorm what we talk about in this podcast and. And we talked about maybe like a woman's, a woman's perspective on the hunting community and the hunting industry. And, and we talked about what, you know, having that conversation, but we tabled that for maybe a future discussion. But what I do value about you hanging out with the wild community is like, you've just got this amazing confidence as a woman who is part of the hunting industry and, like, and just it, to like
1: it or not, it's like, yeah, I inherited it. Yeah, yeah so it's I just who you even, are, right? Yeah, and I don't really have much say in that.
0: But it really is interesting. I think it's really empowering for the other women that come into the program. They're like, oh, well, okay, this is like, well, this is really like, you really are confident and comfortable and... and
1: Well, I'm not fighting for my place at the table.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah.
1: I'm serving. I, I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, servin- putting, <laughs> I'm putting what's on the table, you know? Okay, so,
0: so taking that for a lead. So, um, but basically... You're for hire for cooking. That's that's great. You're you're also going to, with this project, you're also going to, I understand you're going to launch an album to sort of coincide with the cookbook that you're you're working on.
1: I have a new, so my band for the last decade or so has been a rock and roll band. And then more recently I had all these, I like to call them my orphan songs. They're like the songs that I've written when I've been in camp. Because so I always have this idea that I'm going to go out to the wilderness and it's going to be beautiful, like I know it's going to be, and I'm just going to write a whole album. But really the reality, when you get up at five in the morning and you have to cook for crews of people and there's you know no running water and there's no electricity, you're busting your ass. You're, you're working hardcore manual labor every day. <laughs> yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. I do write songs, but... The songs that come out when I'm in the bush are not rock and roll songs. They don't fit in my band, so I have this collection of tunes that I've written over the years that are country tunes. They're like they're the songs that that you sing around a campfire. campfire and a hunting camp. Yeah, they're <laughs> <laughs> well. This is
0: great. And you say you sang a bunch of these uh, when when we do get an opportunity to sit around the campfire and at our at some of the Eat Wild workshops and and you break out the guitar. I mean. Yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome. So I'm I'm looking forward. I mean, and I've also yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing the album.
1: Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be really fun. So I put together a pretty serious country band. So just to back up a little bit, my grandparents had a country band. That was <laughs> super cool. They played uh every rodeo and legion and um wedding up and down the Alaska highway. Right on. And and so my grandma sang Patsy Klein, just like Patsy Klein.
0: You sing Patsy Klein.
1: I do. I have to sing Patsy Klein. It wouldn't I would <laughs> yeah, be disowned. Yeah, I'd be yeah, I'd it. be kicked out. If I wasn't a cook and I didn't sing Patsy Klein, I'd be disowned. Yeah. Um so it's it's inspired a bit by my grandparents' country band and the songs are definitely inspired by the land and um my place within it and of course hunting is featured a little bit and cooking is featured a little bit in the in the you know songwriting and such so i have a i have a pretty cool full-on old school country album ready <laughs> to launch yeah ready to launch and and going to be coming out soon
0: so we'll keep an eye out for it so so i wanted to leave this podcast we'll wrap it up but i what i'm always impressed with the effortless nature that you cook for a large amount of people, and you're o- you're always cooking game meat, and you're always cooking on a in less than ideal uh, cooking conditions. So you've got a large group of people, and you got one burner, or you're cooking on a on a wood stove, um, less than ideal cooking conditions. I what walk us through one of your go-to hunting camp meals that's kind of like well game for for a group of people with less than perfect. Conditions. Well, the one
1: thing you missed in that is Legend. that hunters are never going to be on a schedule. <laughs> yeah. So if you're going to, you know, if so, it's really good when people are late for dinner because it means they probably or maybe got something. So you also have to have, factor in there that you either need to have everything super prepped to last minute, throw the steaks on, or something that can slow cook for a long time. So if I have the time and the space... I definitely will do the slow cook for a long time because then, like, I can write a song before they get home. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got that big break, you got that big yeah. window. Of like,
0: they can show up at six or ten o'clock. Doesn't, be it amazing. doesn't matter.
1: I could go to bed. I can, <laughs> you know, I can just leave it and for them to heat up at one a.m. Uh, so, I mean, there is nothing quite like a moose stew. You know, that's just like the most classic. And one of the things that I do that I learned from my mom. When you're cooking for a large group of people and you're making, you know, a really comforting, wholesome, delicious, hearty mousse stew is to make a giant pot of mashed potatoes beside it. Instead of putting your potatoes in the stew because they just take up too much space. Nobody's got a pot that big. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right, that's and, right.
1: And the potatoes will, you know, they'll they get, overcook
0: in the they'll stew. They'll overcook. They'll overcook. Yeah, so. yeah, when you get that nice slow-cooked mm-hmm. mousse stringy stewy bit. Oh, yeah. but so, then you get the mashed up potatoes. Yeah, and, and then you good. get
1: mush beside it. That's yeah. not good. You want your mush on purpose. So, So I will parboil my potatoes and have them ready to finish cooking and mash at the last minute and the stew just ready to— ready to go with that. And that's probably the most classic hunting camp meal that I can think of. And everybody loves it. It's probably the favorite. And when I was a kid, I really didn't like stew. So I'd be like, oh, mom's making mousse stew again. And it was this thing that I just couldn't stand. Um, But I've learned that I can make, I can make like a stuffed, wrapped, backstrap with you know the most amazing <laughs> i can make the most amazing gourmet meal and people will be like really impressed especially if it's over a fire i could i can make a pie in a dutch oven on a on an open campfire everyone's very impressed i make a mousse stew everybody's happy
0: yeah it's just the go-to it's like
1: it's yeah it's it's it's, it's mind-blowing so, it, but that's it's actually so what nourishing and so
0: simple i mean tonight we had uh we had a white tail loin
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, Jody cooked tonight.
1: I did. And I knew I did a good job because I smoked the house up. And so I, I'm really happy whenever there's smoke billowing from my stove. If,
0: you see, <laughs> I, I gave Jody a, a little white tail. Jody kind of refuses to eat deer meat. It's sort of a, she's, she, being a northern girl, <laughs> I, I am know, from grew the out, north. <laughs> grew up. Uh, but I'm like, okay, well, take this white tail loin, you can cook it tonight, and we'll do the podcast after. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a beautiful way. I mean, it's 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 good as it, it gets as delicious. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But um, but it takes a little coercion to get you to cook, cook deer. Nonetheless, but I did
1: I I I put um, some juniper that I I do a lot of harvesting like foraging in the north as well, so I bring it back so I have it for the rest of the year. So I had some juniper and and such a juniper and blackberry with it. That was that was really nice. That yeah, was really sauce. nice. So,
0: but the, okay, so <laughs> but just to your point. Okay, white tail loin, perfectly seared, lovely like you know juniper blackberry sauce over top, like perfectly cooked to rare, like rare loveliness. The best part about the meal was the fluffy potatoes, and I I was gonna I was, I was gonna ask you dinner, but how did you make them so like the the texture of those potatoes was so fluffy? Like,
1: there's actually a trick to fluffy mashed potatoes. So
0: tell then we'll finish off the podcast with a trick to fluffy mashed okay, potatoes.
1: Don't over mash your potatoes. That's it. Cook them properly and then don't over-mash but them. But
0: how come they're so, pu- like, they're so creamy?
1: Well, the potato's yeah. got to be a good potato. But no, seriously, don't over-mash them. Potatoes, if you overwork them, don't stay fluffy.
0: Okay. Well, because you've managed to get them so they weren't lumpy. Like, I, I mashed them to the lumps are gone. Cook them properly. Okay. Well, I got if lost. You to them, learn. If you cook them properly, maybe this they can't won't, be quite they, translated through a podcast. <laughs> yes, maybe we have to, like, at least get on Instagram stories to tell the trick of the mashed potatoes. But uh, um, oh,
1: and there's another trick: butter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that trick goes throughout all good cooking. So I think the next time we sit down and talk for an hour. That we should just not talk about hunting. No, about we weren't
1: supposed to talk about hunting here. And we
0: spent probably forty-five you, minutes yeah. talking about the guy down in the industry and kind of set the context and and really. The first like, thing I
1: said was like, "I'm not going to be a spokesperson for the hunting industry," and you somehow convinced me to talk about yes. the hunting industry for forty-five minutes.
0: But I hope I, I, well, maybe we'll get some feedback from the audience as to what they what they enjoyed about chatting here, if they understood and appreciated the politics of of the commercial hunting experience or. Uh, or just talk about food and all the, all the great things we can do with Wild Game meat. So hopefully you can come back and chat with me again. And Jody, if people want to check out your stuff right now and your new project, how do they find you?
1: Uh, well, head on over to Instagram and look up Wild Northern Way, or you can look for my blog at wildnorthernway.com.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, I, I feel very uh, very happy to be your friend. and Thanks so much for sharing <laughs> you your too heritage. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I, and thanks for chatting with me on my podcast, and hopefully uh, you can come back and do it again. You're welcome. Okay, thanks so much.